All right, Revelation chapter 9 is where we're at. So in 1986, uh, the Beastie Boys, you know that great Christian band out of New York, the Beastie Boys uh, struck it rich with a song. Anybody know the title? Come on, you, you know, you, most of you know and you're not good, you won't say it. You got to fight for your right to party, man. This was, the, this was the song. It was huge, top the charts, right? Ironically, they wrote the song as a joke. They wrote the song making fun of people who spend their life partying. One of the members of the band said this. They said, there were tons of people singing the song who were oblivious to the fact that it was a total goof on them. Now, the song may have been written as a total goof, but it made them millionaires. Why? Why did it make them millionaires? Well, because it sold millions of copies, but it tapped into a dynamic that goes much deeper than music. And here's the dynamic that it tapped into. It tapped into rebellion. That's what it tapped into. This, this idea, this spirit of rebellion. See, there's a battle that's going on in the world between the flesh and the spirit. Um, it's, it's a battle between darkness and light. And, and it began in heaven when Satan rebelled. And uh, it continues now on earth. Satan uh, and the demons that followed him operating in earth, on the earth, they, they led Adam and Eve, our parents as it were, into sin, and sin thereby spread to all mankind. And so now we are sinners by nature and by choice, and there is that spirit of rebellion that exists in the world. But God, because he's a loving father, because he's a good father, God fights for us. And, and you just see the irony there, that, that while we're rebellious, uh, and, and when we fight for our right to party, as it were, God demonstrates his own love towards us in this, that while we are yet sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. And so God the Father fights for us, and this fight has been going on for thousands of years. Now, really, Revelation is the culmination of that fight. And when I say it's the culmination of that fight, um, listen, understand that the outcome has already been decided. Uh, it, 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 the, the battle was won with Christ on the cross. He shouted out victoriously, triumphantly, it is finished. And he was speaking of paying the penalty for sin. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. The Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so Jesus Christ took our sin upon himself, went to the cross, died on the cross for our sins in our place, and conquered Satan's sin and death. And now anyone who places their faith in Christ and his work, his completed work on the cross, we will be saved, we will be forgiven. So the battle has been won on the Christ or on the cross by Christ, but even so, Satan and his demons, even though they're already defeated, they still wage this, this futile war in the heavenlies and on the earth. And, and so not only is it a futile battle that the enemy wages, but God actually uses all of Satan's efforts. Not only does he defeat them, but he uses them to accomplish God accomplishing his purposes by using uh, the, the works of the enemy. John MacArthur said it this way. He said, Satan is the servant of God, 
God sovereignly allows and oversees all of Satan's assaults and fulfills his purposes in spite of them and even through them. And that's what we're going to see today in Revelation chapter 9. We're going to see God using satanic and demonic forces to fulfill his purposes. Revelation chapter 9 verse 1, it says, Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth, and to him was given the key to the bottomless pit. Now, what's going on here? Jesus has taken the title deed of the earth. It has seals on it, and he's been breaking the seals off one by one. And as he breaks the seals off, his wrath, it's revealing and ushering in his wrath being poured out on an unrepentant world. And so, last week, Jesus opened the seventh seal, and in so doing, he unleashed the second phase of his wrath, and this is known as the seven trumpet judgments. And so we hear the trumpets sound and we see their corresponding uh, wrath uh, associated with that trumpet. And so the first four trumpet judgments um, were poured out last week. If you missed it, we saw that, looked at it in Revelation chapter 8. And what they revealed was the, the expanded destruction uh, in the physical realm as God's wrath is poured out on earth. And so we see massive fires and earthquakes and meteors and missiles and radioactive fallout perhaps is a way we could define what we see there, cosmic disturbances. And then at the end of chapter 8, last week, the angel concludes with, with this proclamation. He says, woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth. He says, hey, look, the first four trumpet judgments have been poured out. Woe, woe, woe. In other words, he's saying, look, you ain't seen nothing yet. And there's still three more trumpet judgments to go, and and it's going to be horrible, basically, is the warning here. And so what we read here in in Revelation chapter 9, verse 1, is that now this fifth angel sounds his trumpet, the fifth trumpet. And the wrath of God shifts from the physical destruction that we've been reading about. And now what we're going to see today is that that destruction carry over to the demonic realm. And and God actually using demonic forces in an exponentially increased series of of wrath that's that's being poured out on mankind. Notice here in verse 1, it starts with a star falling to earth. Now, if you'll take note, uh, John uses the personal pronoun him to describe this star, um, and that personal pronoun, combined with the fact that John already in Revelations 2 and 3, Revelation chapter 2 and 3, has, has used the imagery of stars to, to, de- to depict people, when we put all that together, personal pronoun, previous uses of the word star as it relates to people, And what we see is that he's talking about an individual. He's not talking about an inanimate object, this star falling. He's talking about an individual. And the individual who John is referring to here in Revelation chapter 9 is none other than Satan himself. And I want you to notice also that Satan is described as a star fallen from heaven. He doesn't describe him as a star falling from heaven. No, he describes him, uh, if you will, in the past tense. And we see this event that he's referring to 
depicted in Isaiah 14. I'll put it on the screen for you. Here's what Isaiah the prophet said concerning Satan. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I also will sit on the mount of the congregation, on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the cloud. I will be like the most high. And notice what he says now. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. And so, uh, interesting thing there, what we have depicted in Isaiah is a past event and also a future event. You see... There's this curious episode in, in the book of Job. If you've read through Job, kind of an uplifting story, um, where you, you have the sons of God that come before the throne of God in the opening chapter. And Satan is there with them. And God effectively looks at Satan and says, where'd you come from? And Satan's answer is, well, I came from walking to and fro on the earth. We know, Peter tells us, and we'll look at it in a minute, that, that, that Satan prowls around as a roaring lion on the earth looking for who he's going to devour. And so Satan says, well, I came from walking to and fro on the earth. And God says to him, well, have you considered my servant Job? And, uh, and basically God's bragging on Job. He's, he's like, here's a righteous man and he, and, he, and he serves me. This man is my servant. And, and Satan's response is, well, you got a hedge of protection around him. You know, we pray as Christians sometimes for, you know, God give us a hedge of protection. It sounds weird. and People make fun of it sometimes. We get it from Job. Because Satan goes, look, I can't touch that guy. He's got a hedge of protection around him. And we go, God, I want that hedge of protection around me. You know? And, and so basically, he's like, well, yeah, he's going to praise you. You've got him protected. Why don't you let me at him? And then he'll curse you to your face. God's like, all right, go ahead. Now, God, knowing what he's doing all along, he's testing, he's proving Job's faith. He's going to grow him through that trial. Now, we look at that and we're like, God, please don't ever say to Satan, where I'm concerned, have you considered my servant Ted, you know? And you go, I don't care if he says, have you considered my servant Ted, just don't say me, you know? And, and so we don't want that, but God says to him, hey, you know, here you go. And what happens then is Satan is allowed to assail Job. And, you know, through the whole trial, um, he, his faith prevails. He, he struggles at times, but his faith prevails, and, uh, and God, you know, blesses him and so on. God uses Satan's efforts for evil. God uses them for good. Now, um, what Job shows us is that Satan is not yet bound in the pit that Isaiah spoke of. You know, again, God's, Isaiah talking about Lucifer's fall, Satan's fall, he says, you have fallen, and then he says in, in verse 15 of Isaiah 14, yet you shall be brought down to Sheol. And so what, what the issue here is that even though Satan has fallen, will go into the pit, he's not in the pit yet. The day is coming, and we're going to see in Revelation 20, when God will lock Satan in the pit, and he'll be locked in there for a thousand years, and then he'll let him out one last time to to tempt and to do his evil work, and and then God will deal with him once and for all. But right now, Satan roams free on the earth, and this is what Peter warned about. He said in 1 Peter 5.8, 
We are to be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And the question comes up, well, why? If the pit is where God has banished Satan, if this is what Isaiah prophesied, and if Satan, you know, was cast down to the earth, uh, why isn't he in the pit yet? And the answer is because God uses Satan to accomplish his will. And you go, well, gosh, that doesn't sound, you know, like, I, I don't know if I'm comfortable with that, that God uses this evil being to accomplish his will. Well, we see examples of this throughout Scripture. I mean, the reason Peter could say, hey, be sober and be, be vigilant because Satan prowls around like a roaring lion looking for who he's going to devour. The very reason Peter could say that is because Jesus warned Peter, hey, Satan has asked for you, Pete, by name, that he could sift you like wheat. And, and what happened? Peter was sifted like wheat. He denied the Lord. He had some train wreck times of failing God. Why? Because Satan was allowed to attack Peter. But see, God allowed it because he was doing a building work in Peter's life. And so we see an example in that where God uses Satan to accomplish his, his own will. We see others, other examples where, where uh, God uses Satan. Um, he used Satan um, with, uh, you know, with, with uh, Job, certainly. We see the greatest example that I can think of is Jesus Christ himself. What happened was Satan tempted Judas to betray the Lord. Well, w- what was God doing? Well, the Son of Man per prophecy, had to be betrayed so that he could make a a substitutionary death for all mankind. And so even though the the enemy entered into the heart of of Judas to betray the Lord Jesus, God is large and in charge, and he's like, that fits right into my plan, I'm going to use that for my purposes. And so we have overwhelming examples biblically where, where God is, is using Satan to accomplish his will. Now, ultimately, Satan will be locked up in the lowest depths of the pit, but right now, God uses him, right? Uh, and the Bible says here that, it, that a day is coming during the tribulation, and we just read it here in verse 1, when, when God will give Satan the keys to the bottomless pit. You're like, wait a minute, if he's going to lock him up in the bottomless pit, why on earth does he give him the keys to the bottomless pit first? Well, this is a place where the demons are held in chains, and God's going to let him let the, the demons loose, and again, to accomplish his purposes. Now, we've got to understand what exactly is this bottomless pit that is referred to here. Um, in the Greek, the word that's used there, it's, it's abyss. It's speaking of the abyss. Um, you, you might recall the story in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 8. Jesus is with his disciples, and he goes across the Sea of Galilee to the other side. He goes to the area of the Gadarenes. And there's a dude there that he's demon-possessed, and everybody's afraid of this guy. And Jesus confronts him. And, uh, and in the exchange, Jesus, Jesus asks the demon that has possessed this man, he's like, what's your name? And the demon says, we, we are legion, because there's a grip of us. You know, my translation, there's a ton of us, you know, we're legion. And so Jesus is like, get out of him, you know, and he casts the, this, this legion of demons out of him. Now, what happens when he casts the demons out is they're begging him, don't send us to the abyss. 
See, because what the abyss is, it's the Guantanamo Bay of, of you know, demonic prisons for, for demons, you know, and, and, and so what they're saying is, hey, we don't want to get sent to the abyss, and so send us into that herd of pigs, and, and it's this weird story. Jesus goes, all right, he sends them into the herd of pigs, and the pigs run down into the, to the, to the Sea of Galilee, and they drown themselves. But, but, the, but the idea is that there is this abyss that the most vile demons get, get sent to. There are other demons in the world at work. Not every demon who fell is locked up in the abyss. It seems that it's only reserved for the most vile, the, the most vile of demons, the, 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 the heaviest offenders, if you will. And, and so we get a clue of this, Second Peter Chapter 2, verse 4. I'll put it on the screen for you. Uh, Peter says this. He says, God did not spare even the angels who sinned. He threw them into hell in gloomy pits of darkness where they are being held until the day of judgment. Now that word hell that he uses, it's the Greek word tartaroa. Tartaroa. And what this word is, it's a word that he borrowed from Greek mythology. And in Greek mythology, Tartaroa was the place that was reserved for the worst sinners who had offended the gods personally. And so the, the, the idea here is that Peter used a word from Greek mythology to describe what in truth exists, which is this pit that's reserved for the worst of the demonic forces. Not all the demonic forces are chained in the abyss, but... Only those worst demons, and these are the ones that God now gives Satan the key to the abyss and says, let them out, my judgment is going to fall through, the, through these demons. So, that day is here, Satan has fallen, he's been cast out of heaven, now he gets the keys to the abyss, and he unleashes, literally, hell on earth. Verse 2, and he opened the bottomless pit, and smoke arose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. And so the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. And then out of the smoke locusts came upon the earth. And to them was given power as the scorpions of the earth have power. Uh, and they were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth or any green thing or any tree but only those men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And they were not given authority to kill them, but to torment them for five months. Their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man. Verse 6, in those days men will seek death and will not find it. Uh, they will desire to die and death will flee from them. Death will take a holiday and it will be a horrible time of unparalleled misery. And it's all demonic in nature. Now several times here what we see is that John uses analogies to describe what it is that he's seeing. Uh, he, he will say it was like this or like that several times throughout this, and as we continue, you're going to see it more and more. And remember, what John is doing here is he's describing demonic forces that the world hasn't seen. 
So he has nothing to gauge it by. So all he does is he says, look, I saw this thing that no one's ever seen before, and I'm going to use the images of other things that the world has seen to, to sort of describe what it is that, that we're looking at here. And so he says, you know, that it's like locusts. Now, keep in mind that locusts devour everything in sight. That's what they do. Um, we see in, in the Old Testament, there's all these examples of locust infestations. And we actually have some modern examples as well. In 1951, the worst locust invasion that has ever struck in modern times, it struck the nation of Iraq and Iran and Jordan and Saudi Arabia. Huge geographical area. And they were absolutely decimated by this locust infestation. Ate everything. And so what these demons represent here is that they have a voracious appetite. And notice he says, no, you know, they're not going to strike the grass, they're not going to strike the trees, all the normal stuff that locusts eat. No, these demons, who he describes like locusts, they, they focus on men. That's, that's their deal. And they come in a swarm of overwhelming numbers. That's the imagery that he uses here. Um, and they, so they don't, they don't focus on the trees, they don't eat the, the, the grass, the trees, and so on. They're, they're focusing on men, and they're not killing men, they're not eating men, but they are absolute, they're stinging them, right? And so now brings up another illustration that he uses, like scorpions. Scorpions, they have a brutal sting. I don't know if anybody's ever been stung by a scorpion. Thankfully, I never have, but I understand uh, in reading about it that the sting of a scorpion is, is excruciatingly painful. And in fact, there, there are some so, locust stings from specific species of locust that when they sting, it is so severe that um, ultimately it can bring death, but usually what it brings on with people is convulsions and paralysis. And one commentator was making the connection. He says, you know, when you read through Scripture and you look at examples where demons you know, affected men and interacted with men and actually possessed men, Jesus encountering them, casting them out. You have an example of a man in Capernaum in, uh, in Mark chapter 1. You've got the boy uh, that G- Jesus cast the demon out in Mark chapter 9. And what you see is that this demon in them causes them to fall down, causes them to convulse. All of these things, all of these manifestations that you actually see manifested in the day-to-day when people are stung by certain species of scorpion. So you've got this picture of a swarm of demons that are too numerous to count with excruciatingly painful sting that convulses its victims and it leaves men wishing that they were dead. And I want you to notice that he protects the people that are sealed, God does. He says, hey, these demons that are released... If there's anybody who's sealed, they're not going to be impacted by these demons. Now, we've already seen over and over again over the last several chapters the heart of God. That even though he's raptured his church during the time of the great tribulation, and by the way, just on a timeline, understand, we're in the last three and a half years of the tribulation period here in Revelation chapter 9. Okay, And, and so we've already seen, and even though God has raptured his church, that his heart is still to redeem men and women. And so that's the heart of God. God desires that none should perish, but that all should come to everlasting life. 
And so we still see God moving and operating in the world, even after he's taken his church out, to save as many people as he can. And so, on the, on, so what we're seeing here is this escalating wrath of God, but he still protects his people. Now, some people are troubled with this. They're like, man, look at all of this horrible stuff that God is doing, and he's called a God of love. He is a God of love. He doesn't want anybody to perish. And as a matter of fact, even with these demons being released and people being stung and in such agony, it says that they wish for death, but, but death doesn't come. And even that really, if you think about it, is a picture of God's grace. Because what God is doing here is he's, he, these people are living in torment and agony and for five months, and don't you know, for five months, the plea, the Holy Spirit is, hey, why don't you give it up, man? Just surrender. I mean, you're in agony for crying out loud. Maybe God might say that to, to somebody here today. I don't know. Maybe God might be saying, how long? Are you going to just, you know, the guy goes to see the doctor and he's got a hammer and, and the doctor says, well, why are you here? And he says, well, it hurts when I, when I, hit, when I hit myself in the hammer with the, in the head with this hammer. The doctor's like, well, quit hitting yourself in the head with a hammer for crying out loud. And then we're like that sometime where we, you know, it's just, we just keep hitting ourselves in the head with a hammer. And God would say, look, I'm giving you all this time to repent for crying out loud. Why, why don't you just give it up? So really it's, it's even a picture of, of God's grace as these people who, who are stung, he's given them time to respond for crying out loud. But there's not that indication that they're going to. Now, as we continue, John is going to continue describing their experience, their, their, their uh, appearance, the appearance of these demons. Uh, verse 7, we pick it up. He says, The shape of the locusts was like horses prepared for battle, on their heads were crowns of something like gold, and their faces were like the face of men. They had hair like women's hair, and their teeth were like lions' teeth, and they had breastplates like the breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots with many horses running into battle. Verse 10, they had tails like uh, scorpions, and there were stings in their tails, their power was to hurt men five months, and they had as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, but in Greek he has the name Apollyon. One woe is past. Behold, two more woes are coming after these things. So verse 8, the four trumpets are blown. And the warning after that is to say, whoa, 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 there's three more trumpets coming. And so now we conclude verse 12, and they say, hey, one of those woes of the last three trumpets has passed. You got two more coming right on the heels of this. Now, imagery that John uses. Basically, again, never seen it before. So he says, these demons, they're like horses that are prepared for battle. And, and the imagery there seems to be like, hey, they're warlike. They're chomping at the bit. Um, they, they have crowns on their head. The, the word that's used is the Stephanus crown, the crown that was given to the victor. And, and the image here is, look, these are invincible, unstoppable, victorious, you know, warriors kind of thing. <clears throat> he says they had, the, they had on them faces like men. 
And it's speculated, and I, I, I like this, I read it in a commentary, basically that this isn't like some wild animal that's just operating by instinct. No, these are an intelligent being. They're thinking. They're, they, they exercise, you know, shrewdness and cunning. Uh, you know, mankind is the most dangerous predator that has ever been created because we have intellect and we have the, op- the, 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 the ability to, to be thinking and to exercise cunning, uh, you know, uh, behaviors and so on. Uh, he says they have hair like women's hair. One commentator speculated that this emphasizes the, the seductive nature uh, of their uh, temptation. Um, they had teeth like lion. That doesn't require a lot of imagination. They're fierce. They're powerful. Um, John says they have a breastplate of iron and they, the sound that their wings make is like chariots with many horses. The, the picture here is this invulnerable force that's coming. And then we're given the name of their leader. And, and he, he gives us the name both in the Hebrew and he gives us the name of the leader in the Greek. In the Hebrew, it's Abaddon. In the Greek, it's Apollyon. Both of them mean the same thing. Um, it means destroyer. And, uh, and so it's probably to emphasize that this now, as the wrath continues and these demons come out, they're indiscriminate in the, the, the destruction that they bring both to Jews and to Gentiles on the earth at this time. And so this is the picture that we're reading about. Now verse 13, he continues, and he says, Then the sixth angel sounded. This is now moving from the fifth trumpet to the sixth trumpet. The sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the altar, uh, which is before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And so the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. And the picture here is that God is large and in charge. It happens the hour, the day, the year, exactly, precisely when it's prescribed to happen, not a second sooner, not a second later. And, um, and it says, verse 16, now the number of the army of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them, and thus I saw the horses in the vision, those who sat on them and had breastplates of fiery red, uh, uh, hyacinth blue, sulfur yellow, and the heads of the horses were like the heads of lions, and out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and brimstone. These three plagues, by these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and the smoke And the brimstone which came out of their mouths, verse 19, for their power is in their mouth and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents having heads, and with with them they do harm. And so again, what we have here is the blowing of the sixth trumpet, God's wrath escalating. And I want you to take note that the four angels here are bound, which tells us that they're demonic angels. God doesn't have to bind good angels. These angels are bound, and now God says, all right, 
The time of their application is here. Let's unbind them. Just as I gave Satan the key to the abyss to let the demons out, now I'm going to give the word to the sixth angel, blow your trumpet, and we're going to let these four demonic angels go out and do their dirty business. And I want you to take note of here where the sound comes from. Because where it comes from, we read there, is at the four corners, the, the four horns of the altar. The, the sound, this voice, this command from God that's given, listen, it comes from the altar of incense, right? The, the corollary, the altar of incense, we talked about this last week. The place where the, where the priest would go in and make intercession for the saints. The Bible says that Jesus himself intercedes for us, that right now he's praying for us before the throne of God by name. The same place, grace, mercy, intercessory prayers from God. This is, this is the, the usual is Jesus' voice going up and in, in praying for us by name. But now the words that come out are release the four angels, release these four demons to kill a third of mankind. And so now it becomes a place of judgment and wrath. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 through 31 tells us this, For if we go on sitting deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse, worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, and again, the Lord will judge his people. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews concludes by saying, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Understand what's happening here. Understand the picture. God is executing judgment on an unrepentant world. And he's using the very demons who, who led this rebellion He's using them to do so. He says to these demons, to Satan and the demons, guess what? You're defeated. I'm judging you. But then he says, I'm going to use you to defeat the rebellion on the earth. You watch some movie and the bad guy's got a gun and the good guy grabs the bad guy and he... And he kills him with his own gun, and then he turns around and uses this guy and starts shooting all the bad guys. That's kind of the picture here that's going on, you know? And, and so there's, there's the God executing judgment on an unrepentant world, and he's using these demons, and you see the plagues of, sm- of fire and smoke and brimstone. But we read in verse 20, and this is what it all comes down to. If, if I've lost you, tune in right here. But the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands and that they should not worship demons and idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and wood which can neither see nor hear nor walk 
and they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. This is astounding. This is absolutely astounding. When you think about these people are miserable. The demons themselves, the worst demons that have ever existed, have been let loose. These angels who've been chained up at the four corners of the Euphrates, they've been let loose. And now they are reaping or wreaking havoc and hell, literally hell on earth. And people are, 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 they're miserable like they've never been miserable before. And yet what we read is that they still reject God. So years ago, I'm I, a paramedic in the fire department and I was dispatched to a house in Rancho Mirage where I was working at the time. And um, one of the saddest experiences I ever had in all my years as a paramedic, I, I roll up on scene and there's a young man in his 20s and he's dying of AIDS. And we get to the house, the man is all alone, he is naked, on the floor, and he is covered in his own excrement. And he is covered by ants. So much so, I mean, just to take the guy's pulse, you would have a swarm of ants running up your arm. The man is dying a miserable death. He's all alone, He's in the condition I've described, hasn't showered for weeks maybe, and yet there on the floor all around him, fecal matter, ants, and homosexual pornographic materials that I just won't even go into describing. The man's dying one of the most hideous deaths I've ever seen. And he won't let go. He won't let go of the very thing that got him there in the first place. He too, his death is going, clinging to these idols. When at his state, he should have been crying out to God for mercy and for, for God's forgiveness. He's dying alone for crying out loud. Let alone everything else I've described. He's all alone. And I'm sad to say, not a lot of compassion by the people that were there dispatched to help him. Just a lot of disgust. And it's heartbreaking. The obvious question today as we close in Revelation chapter 9 are you going to choose the glory of heaven or are you going to choose the torment of hell? Look, we're looking at the end times. This is the last three and a half years of the tribulation period. The church has been raptured out. What does that mean for all of us here? Well, I, I would hope for the majority of us here, we go, well, I'm not going to be here. I mean, this is, this is an interesting academic study in what's going to happen in the last days, but, but, but in terms of impacting me, you know, hopefully I'll be up in heaven. Yeah, but there's people that you love that aren't going to be up in heaven. And, and more over than that, even over than that, look, 
the lessons here, they don't just apply to the unsaved who are going to go through the wrath of God. Because I think there's a, there's a bigger picture to see here. I think the picture to see here is the high cost of sin. See, I, I think when we have those, those, those sinful addictions that we hold on to, the things that we just sort of wink at, the things that we just sort of tolerate... It's been said that culture is a combination of, of, of what you intentionally do and what you tolerate. And so there's things in our lives that we, that we tolerate. Jesus said, this is the condemnation, John 3.19, that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their, day, their, their deeds were evil. And I, maybe today you've got some sort of secret sin in your life that you've been hanging on to and it's costing you. It's costing you your health, your relationships, or your job, or your reputation, or your finances. And listen, by any sane assessment, if you were to step back and look at what this thing is actually costing you, you'd let go of it. But maybe you haven't let go of it. Maybe you've heard the story. There are... The, the monkeys are actually a food source in a lot of areas in the world, and some areas in Africa and Asia and so on. And, and ages ago, the tribal hunters figured out how to catch monkeys. It's really actually really simple. They take a gourd, and they fill it up with gravel and sand so it weights it down, and they cut a little hole in it, and the hole is just big enough that the monkey can get his hand in, and then they'll drop in a piece of fruit in there or a nut or something, that some food source that the monkey likes, and then they just set it out to where the monkey's at. And what the monkey will do is he'll reach his hand in there and he'll grab a hold of it, but when it's in his hand and he's got his fingers closed around it, he can't withdraw his hand. And because the thing's weighted down, he can't get away. And so then the hunters walk up, and the monkey loses his mind at this point. He's squawking and complaining, and, you know, he's uncomfortable trying to pull this thing out. But he's stuck. Why? Because he won't let go of the thing that he's got. And that's what I think about when I read Revelation chapter 9. I, I, I get to the last two verses, and I go, after hell on earth, these people won't let go. And I think for us, the takeaway is to say, is there something you ain't letting go of? That God would say today, really? Re- after all that, you're not going to let go of it.